Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They have been providing a means for new embedding writers to have a chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice went out. Um, today we welcome author Karen Vigors. Uh, we have a chat about the environment, her books, writing, all kinds of stuff. It is a recorded interview. So please don't call in. Here's Karen. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's nice to meet you, and I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> I'm sure we're in for a great chat. Yeah, we um, we have a lot to talk about. Um, so my listeners can get to know you since you're new to the show. Could you tell a little bit about how you started writing. Um, were you a reader? Did you um, get encouraged by your parents? How did that start? Well, I've been a writer ever since I could um, pick up a pen and form sentences. So I had an award for my... The first time I had an award for a story was when I was in grade two. So I would have been, I don't know, about eight years old. Um, but I had a really wonderful sort of outdoors uh, upbringing. My family had a farm... Uh, in the country and uh, not too far from Melbourne because my dad worked in the city and we used to go up there on weekends and we had cows and um, a bit of land and I used to spend a lot of time outdoors with those cows. I've always been an animal lover which eventually took me into being a vet. But we had a lot, the world was a lot wetter back then Sherry, uh, Mm -hmm. even here in Australia and it was quite a rainy place uh, where we lived down in Victoria which is one of the more southern states of Australia. And we lived, our farm was in the Dandenong Ranges. And on weekends when it was was wet and rainy and we couldn't go outside, um, I used to spend a lot of time reading. I always loved books. Um, We didn't have many books back then, not like children these days who, you know, the parents just go out and buy them books or they have a Kindle and they have e-books and that sort of thing and it's unlimited books. We had um, more restraint on, on the books that we owned. And I remember the first time my dad took me to the... Uh, the local library and and just being overwhelmed for choice and and how exciting that was. But yeah, I had a world that was immersed in books and uh, it was very early on that I started to write my own stories. Um, One of the people who worked for my dad, my dad used to manage Melbourne's water supply and we lived, not not the farm, but we we lived in in another place which was in the grounds around uh, one of the service reservoirs to Melbourne, had quite beautiful grounds. And the office that Dad worked in was on those grounds. And I used to go in there on the weekend and use an old banger typewriter with keys and ribbon and uh, all that sort of thing to write uh, my stories. And I remember I was, as back then I used only two fingers. And um, one of the secretaries there, he happened to come in on a weekend while I was banging away on this typewriter. And he said, no, that's not how you do it. I'll show you how to use all your fingers. So I did learn back then to type, but it was it was a bit of improvised typing. So even though I use all my fingers, I'm definitely not a touch typist. And um, you can tell my origins uh, with typing because of how hard I bang the keys on my computer. <laughs> I, <laughs> I understand that. I learned on my dad's manual, and those things are for men because you have to bang down on the darn keys just to get one letter to get 
you know, hit the uh, ribbon and hit the paper. It just broke a lot of fingernails in high school taking typing. <laughs> well, because I was an outdoors girl and I rode horses and uh, we still spent a lot of time on the farm, I, I don't think I was ever a fingernails girl, so I didn't break too many fingernails on um, computer. Well, it wasn't computers back then, was it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Typewriter. So, yeah, I was always... I've, um, I've always loved stories and um, loved reading, and I used to spend many hours uh, riding my horses around the Dandenong Ranges on my own a lot of the time. Even though my brother and sister rode as well, I still spent a lot of time on my own in the countryside, riding through the, gum the eucalypt forests and um, around the hills. And, and I think uh, in that solitude, I do like my solitude, um, was where my desire to write, to write was born. I was also inspired by an Australian author who you may not have ever heard of, probably haven't. Her name was Aline Mitchell and she wrote a series of books that was sold internationally called the Silver Brumby series. And that series was about wild horses and it was set in the snowy mountains of Australia. And uh, she was very, she did a beautiful job of evoking landscape and the lives of the animals. Like they, you know, that, People sometimes used to write it off as our oh, talking horses and, and that sort of thing. But in fact, there was a lot of nature. And in the, the front of her book, she had little maps um, of the region. So when I finally went to the Snowy Mountains for the first time, um, I, I felt like I knew, knew that country. And, and her writing inspired me to be a writer. We used to write letters to each other. Oh, that's um, really nice. She would tell me about the cattle on her um, beautiful property, um, in a, a more remote part of Victoria, overlooking the mountains, and I would write to her about my little pony and uh, and our cows on our farm. So yeah, she she was definitely an inspiration for me. I um I think the first book I ever read about Australia was oh, what's the name of it? It's um my mind just gets really sad sometimes. What was it about, Sherry? It was with I, it had Robert Redford in it, and Mel, Meryl Streep in the movie. Hmm. And was it, was it the one about a baby, evil angels, or something? No, 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 no. I wouldn't watch that anyway. Um, <laughs> I I don't like, I, especially at that age. I was not going to watch some, a, a a dog eating babies or what a, a dingo eating <laughs> babies. No. No, this was, um, gosh, you know, when you get older, you can't remember. Anyway, the book was, the movie was based on this book. It was about, uh, the stations and, and the wideness of Australia and the English trying to learn that, Austra uh, that they're not better than Australians. And uh, it was, it was really, it was very interesting. And I was kind of actually... I love Robert Redford, so please don't get me wrong. But I was really disappointed it was an Australian actor playing his part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not. I know Meryl Streep um, had made it some attempts to do the Australian accent. It's not easy to do. It's a very flat, um, a flat accent where you don't move your lips very much. So it's not an easy accent to to learn. I think. Well, luckily she was playing English. She wasn't playing she Australian. Was okay, um, Robert Redford. I don't know how he went trying to sound Australian. I don't know. He was he was okay, but it wasn't. 
I would have rather seen somebody who was Australian play that character, but I'm trying to think of a person of that vintage. It'd be about in their 80s now, playing that character, and I can't think of anybody right off the top of my head. Um, well, I did finish answering your question about how I came into writing, and, and so I might go back to that if that's okay. Okay. Anyway, um, that was the first book I ever read about Australia, <laughs> even though I can't oh, right. think of the name. <laughs> So, um, yes, how did you start writing? Well, um, I, I would have loved to have been a writer, you know, from when I was a child, but it's not an easy way to make a living. And I had an uncle point that out to me when he asked me what I'd like to be when I grow up, that terrible question that people always ask young people. I was about 12, and I said I wanted to be an authoress, which gives you an indication of how old I might be using that term. <laughs> and, uh, and then he said, oh, well, you can't make any money doing that. Um, and if you want to get make money out of writing, you have to be a journalist, and you're not tough enough to be a journalist. So he shattered my dreams, and that's what then took me on uh, to decide to become a vet, a uh, veterinarian working with um, with uh, all sorts all sorts of different animals. And so I did that. I became a vet. I worked for five years in in general practice with all sorts of animals, and I was just writing journals and poetry and things for myself during that time. And then I did a PhD. I met my husband, who's a wildlife um, ecologist, and I followed him uh, to go and live in Canberra's capital city, Australia's capital city, Canberra. And I did a PhD myself in wildlife health. Uh, and then after that, um, I worked with wildlife for a while, and, and then we had children, and, and it was a bit tricky having two scientists in one family. And my husband said to me, well, you've always wanted to write, so why don't you um, write two days? Work part-time as a vet, because that had some income. Uh, look after the children, children and write in your spare time. <laughs> it wasn't too much spare time. Not, to, not a lot of time to write. <laughs> but I think you get really efficient when you're a parent of, of young children, because you only have small snatches of time when you can write. And... Um, and so when I had that permission to start writing, um, I sort of spent six months loosening up my writing away from science writing and having done my PhD and, and that sort of thing. And I used actually a book by somebody you've probably heard of, um, Natalie Goldberg's book, uh, Writing Down the Bones. I found that really useful to help me loosen up and get more confidence in, in just, I suppose, their stream of consciousness writing just to to loosen you and get and get that confidence in putting words on paper. And then I thought, well, I'll just dive in, and I, I wrote a novel. And I'd always wanted to write a novel. It took me about two years, and then um, I had some good fortune along the way um, with respect to getting a publisher here in Australia. Um, but then the global finance... Uh, so my first novel was published, The Stranding, and it was set on the south coast of Australia. And it was about um, someone recovering from grief and loss. Uh, but it also centred around the natural environment because, as I mentioned to you with my upbringing, I love spending time outdoors. And so it was centred around um, what the, the wild beaches and the, of the south coast and around whales, around the issue of modern versus historic whaling and whaling history. And the, that novel culminates in a whale stranding on a beach and whether we always do the right thing as humans, trying to rescue things, whether it's always the most humane thing to do, or whether sometimes in our desire to help, we may actually um, may hamper any rescue efforts in our, 
our enthusiastic will to get in there and, and fix things. So that was my first novel, The Stranding. Um, and then the global financial crisis struck. And um, so when I tried to get my second novel published, it was a bit tricky. Um, and they weren't going to publish it. And, and then in the end, I, I said, look, I need to, to get a, a stable of books. I need to get a, a number of books coming out. So I'm willing to have it published with no advance. And um, they said, oh, well, okay, we might consider that and we'll give you a small advance. And I'm so glad they took it on because my second novel was called The Lightkeeper's Wife and that has been my most successful novel to date. Uh, it was set in Antarctica because I'd been down there twice as a volunteer vet and also on this beautiful island um, off the south of Australia, off Tasmania, called Bruni Island at the lighthouse. And it's about... Um, isolation and how it affects lives and relationships. But that book, The Lightkeeper's Wife, has gone on to be translated. It was a bestseller here in Australia and sold over 50,000 copies and probably more than 70 now, 60 or 70,000. But it also went on to be translated into about 10 different languages and become a huge bestseller in France where it sold more than half a million copies, which was completely out of the blue. So that was a, a lovely story that, that um, it had that success. And then I've written two other novels, The Grass Castle, and my most recent novel is The Orchardist's Daughter, which is also set in Tasmania, around a small timber town about outsiders, three young outsiders trying to find their place and belong in a town that's a bit hostile um, and a bit difficult to fit into, a, a parks ranger trying to find his way into a timber town where he's not welcome, a young woman who's been controlled by her brother and a 10-year-old boy who's being um, bullied at school. But it's a story about community and, and self-empowerment and, and books and forests. And so. so all my books are set in natural landscapes and it's been what I always wanted to do in my life, Sherry, to write. It's, it's my thing. It's been my thing since I was small. And um, even though every book is hard and every book is a journey, uh, I, I love that process. And I think... I don't think I'm getting any better at writing, or maybe I am, and I have higher expectations of myself. But um, I'm learning to accept the process of writing a novel, that I'm not one of those writers who can produce a book every year. It takes me more time, because my books aren't sequels, or you know they don't have shared characters generally. They're all standalone books, so it takes time to create new worlds, I guess, as a writer. Yeah, sure, it does substantiate, make everybody have a character and, and the surroundings and it's a lot of work. It is, and, and you have to get to know their backstory and their secrets and how they react and behave to things and how they react to things and how they behave in certain situations. It takes time. And, and you then you have to understand the place that they live in. I do a lot of reading. Once I connect uh, with a place where I want to set my novels, it generally starts with place for me. Once I connect with a place and make that decision, then I do a whole lot of reading to get more of a feel for that place. So I'll do historical reading, I'll read about the indigenous past, I'll do natural history reading, I'll find out about the birds and the wildlife, I'll read about um, the sort of history of that, that town or place and what sort of lives people might have there. And then from that, um, characters who, who may be realistic for that, that place and time start to emerge and then they drive the plot. So it's all interwoven, and it, it, yeah, and it's fun. It's a great process, but it does take time. And then you get to argue with your characters about doing things, and they don't want to, and then you have to tell them, yeah, you're going to do it, and they say, no, I'm not. 
I generally let them dictate, Sherry. You know, I've, sometimes I have a bit of a plan. I'm not a huge planner, but I like to have a bit of an outline and a feeling for the character in the place and then sort of dive in. Uh, and it's often as you're writing and the characters to start to evolve and start to develop a life of their own and opinions of their own, they, they take turns you weren't expecting. And I always go with those. Um, go to those places with them. And I always let them take hold and, and take me there because I find that when you move outside of your plan, sometimes that's where your most energetic and uh, most real writing comes from and, and the characters actually begin to feel more real. So even if I don't use that material later on, I, I, I generally go with those tangents if a character wants to dictate it. Did you ever... Okay, my first novel, I, I think it was the second or third draft, all of a sudden, I had a cat, and I didn't even want a cat in this particular book, but the cat came, and the character wanted it, and, well, it turned out to be a very popular cat once the book came out. <laughs> I just wondered, did anything pop in that you really didn't want to pop in, but you really had no choice? <laughs> yeah, those things happen, and look, as a, I can comment on, I'd like to comment on your um, your experience there, because... As a veterinarian, I'm very, very interested in the human-animal bond and human-animal relationships, whether that be with domestic animals or with wildlife. And I think that animals play a really important role in our lives. And so I'm not surprised that that cat wangled its way in there, and I'm not surprised the cat was um, was popular because I think people relate to, to, to animals and they relate to the support that animals give us. Uh, in my book, The Lightkeeper's Wife, and there's animals in all of my books, but in The Lightkeeper's Wife, there's a one of the characters is um, the son, Mary's the, the Lightkeeper's Wife, um, and her son, one of her sons, Tom, um, he's a bit damaged. He went to Antarctica and he was, uh, he was married, lost his marriage while he was down there, and so he lives with his dog, and his dog gives him this, is his companion and his friend but it also offers him an opportunity to talk and chat. He chats to his dog, as we all do to our animals. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important thing, that, that so many of us who um, have pets um, can really relate to in writing. So, yeah, and, and that particular character, um, in that particular book, there was another character that I didn't plan who completely just popped up out of the blue, um, a park stranger called Leon, who was such an interesting character, I took him into another book my latest one, The Orchardist Daughter. That's the only book that's had any character that's had any link between any of my books. But this character popped up out of the blue and had a strong voice and a strong presence, and I wasn't expecting him. So, yes, that sort of thing has happened to me as well, Sherry. It was really funny. Well, the character... I love animals, so it's not like I, I hate cats. In fact, I have a cat. But um, I just, it's more like I was developing it along a different line. And I really wasn't expecting to have any animals because of the type of situation that was happening in... It was a murder mystery that was happening in the book. And... But this girl was really damaged. And uh, a woman was trying to help her, so she bought her a pet. And that's how it popped in. But it was like, I didn't want you there. <laughs> Where do you come from, baby? <laughs> well, obviously that cat was determined to be there and sometimes you just have to accept that. Though at other times you have to accept that characters have to go too. So I've um, my third novel, The Grass Castle, 
was about connection with the land um, and it was set in the mountains near to the city where I lived called Canberra and it was about an older woman whose um, ancestors had displaced the uh, indigenous aboriginals from the mountains as they settled and then generations later she and her husband had been displaced from the land um, when a national park was was gazetted. Now I've lost my track of thought, what were we talking about? About characters and and things happening unexpectedly in her story that we weren't wanting or planning to just pop in. Mm, well, I've lost the thread of where I was taking that. It uh, might come back to me. Oh, you were you were talking about um, a character having to go. That's what you brought up. Oh, yes, and so when I first submitted that book to my publisher, um, the, my publisher said, this is just not working. Uh, and she was right, there were issues with it. And she said, how about, I mean, this character is just, just not adding it. Well, she didn't like that character, so maybe it was partly personal as well, but she suggested that character go, and in fact I used parts of that character and amalgamated her with another character, and that that was a much character with more depth and more realism, I suppose. So, yeah, sometimes you have to accept that characters need to go. If your editor editor who you trust thinks they need to go, then, yeah, you have the good ones that, that announce themselves and add things, and then you have ones that aren't quite working and, and maybe you have to ax them and that's part of, you know, having to let some of your babies go. Yeah, there's also the other kind that is really difficult. I, I wrote a series of short stories and um, one of the characters was the father of the female lead in the series, the short stories. And the father was based on my dad because he was, my dad was a great guy and this character was a great guy and totally different than my father but his personality and his affection and a lot of the the humor was my dad so in the natural progression of the story he had a he had to die because he was it was an Indian American Indian and that he was the tribal leader and in what was going to happen was his daughter was going to take over as a tribal leader and it was a natural progression it, it was set up that way but when I got to the point it was like I was my father was dying it was this is about 10 years maybe 15 years before my dad actually passed away so I'm like writing this and I'm crying and just it was tearing my heart out to write this so I finished the story and I brought it to my father and I said and because he always read my stuff and he knew what I was doing and I said I think it's awful and he goes okay let me read it and he dispassionately because he was a Virgo and he really could do that he dispassionately read it and he said this is one of the best things you've ever written, Sherry. If you don't publish that, I will kick your butt. Not literally. <laughs> well, it would have had that energy because it came from your heart. And I think when people say, what should I write about? I think you have to write about things that are true to you and that are close to your heart. I don't think anyone can, unless they're very good at writing to a recipe, I don't think people can go out and just try and write a bestseller. I think that um, you have to find what you write best. And... And sometimes, even if that's painful, that you obviously brought that pain and that that reality and and to your writing, and it felt true. It felt felt good. So, 
Um, yeah, that's, that's incredible. Those are some of those wonderful experiences that, that come all too infrequently in your writing. I know, I know. And it's weird because, it, like I said, it wasn't a book. It wasn't one of my novels. It was a short, series of short stories. But I, he was, I mean, I, you always have a bit of yourself in every character. Even the bad guys, it doesn't matter. There's some part of you in it because you're writing it. Yeah. And so you you either have a deep affection or you don't like them or whatever it is. But when it's somebody you really love, it's just really difficult when you have when you're just writing and it's happy. It flows beautifully, but when you have to do something like that, it almost kills you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. Well, no, it's not good that, you know, it almost kills you, but it just means that if you were moved that deeply as you were writing it, then, then other people reading it, once you let that story go uh, out into the world, other people reading it um, are more likely to have that strong connection too, I think. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that was one of my more popular series too. Um, anyway, so my next question is um, about what's currently happening in the world. Um, I know you're in lockdown too. Is Are there anything, any kind of plans or things that you're working on that you weren't intending to work on, be, but now you are because you kind of stuck home? <laughs> um, well, I have been, it's been a, a hectic year. The year for us with school and all that sort of thing, um, only starts in February, so um, my daughter had only been back at school, you know, a few weeks before this sort of all, she's doing year 12, all blew up, and we had to bring my son home from university, his first year in university, he had a gap year last year and was travelling. And I had been working on a novel um, last year, and it had been going quite well and quite quickly, and when I say well, it was the first draft, so it's going to be horrible when I go back to the beginning and, and, um, and re-edit it. But then we just sort of had a whole chain of events that stopped me from writing. So in October, my father was unwell and in hospital for several weeks and I had to go down and spend time helping him through the hospital system. And then the bushfires, um, which had been burning since September in Australia, because that's our summer, of course. Uh, well, not. It was earlier than our bushfires usually begin. Usually they're in January, February. But they began in September and most of the east coast of Australia um, burnt and right down into Victoria and parts of Western Australia and Kangaroo Island as well. It was a very horrendous, confronting time because it felt like all of, all of the east was on fire and millions of wildlife died and people lost their homes and it was dreadful. So that was a that consumed our summer. We really didn't feel like we had a summer because we couldn't really go away. Um, and do the things we normally do in summer because the whole coast was affected and people's lives were so damaged. And then um, my mother-in-law has been unwell. She was diagnosed with cancer in January and then COVID broke out in February. So um, I'm just now starting, now in April, starting to get back into my writing again. And I, can't, I don't like talking about what I'm actually working on because it seems to, I don't know, it's superstitious or something, might be the kiss of death, but I have been working on that. I did start a COVID diary as well, but it's been a challenging time adjusting to all being home in the house together, and we get on pretty well as a family, but there's been, you know, some some challenging moments where it's been hard to get my head around writing. So I haven't done as much as the, the diary, the journal writing as I thought I might. Um, 
and doing a bit of reading and reviewing. But yeah, I'm really pleased to be back into my novel now. How about for yourself? Um, I mean, we are in lockdown here. We uh, have been fortunate that we locked down quite early um, before uh, there was much spread of the virus. So we've uh, across all of Australia, um, we've only had about 60 deaths, I think, uh, which is great. Um, not great that anybody died, but I, I really feel for, for all of you over in the US and, and everyone over in Europe where things have been much more um, devastating and, and so many people are dying. It's very confronting and very awful. And um, while lockdown is difficult to deal with, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's much worse having to deal with all these tragic deaths and the, the virulence of this terrible virus. Well, for me personally, it's not any different because I work at home all the time. Um, <laughs> but, but the part that is different is that I can't, I don't have the freedoms that I'm used to. Like, I can't go to the movies with my friends, I can't meet friends for coffee, I can't go to my yoga class. You know, I, I when you're a writer and I do, um, I do my shows and I'm a writer and I do everything from home. So I don't really see anybody other than my family and my cat, which is lovely, but, you know, you like to see other people. That's the part I kind of, I miss a lot, is I still get to see people, but on Skype, which isn't quite, like, taking Skype yoga is not like going to yoga class, I've discovered. Yeah, no, I agree. Not seeing people is difficult, and I think it's very difficult for young people who are really um, at that time where they want to be socialising and spreading their wings. Oh, yeah. Um, I and feel... It's that's really we don't really have a choice in this. Like, you know, it's a nasty, nasty virus, and it's going to kill a lot of people. And um, people who, you know, the emphasis initially was it was going to be older people, but there's plenty of other people that are, are dying in all sorts of different age groups and people that were otherwise well. So um, it's something that, yeah, you guys all know that too, how seriously it needs to be taken. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and I feel awful for the people. I actually have a friend who got it. He's He got through it. He's okay. But he was telling how the first three weeks was hell. Um, oh, gosh. And it just, you know, it's, it's a very, it's, I'm not confronted with it here nobody in my area has gotten it yet knockwood but um i know downtown san diego there's been several cases i know that um los angeles has had several cases san francisco was the first in lockdown that's when they locked down the state of california because there was a lot of cases in san francisco so our state has been affected but nothing compared to new york new york was the worst of the entire country get affected. I mean, that that is just scary, what's going on there. Well, I really feel for the people that, um, you know, I don't know, your public health, your health system is not as supportive in the U.S. as, as ours is over here, and um, so many more people and poor people who don't have that access to health and care, there must be a lot more dead and ill people than they even know about because of the number of street people and that sort of thing as well. I feel sorry, desperately sorry for those people who fall through the cracks and can't access care and I I also feel very much for medical professionals and nurses and all those health professionals 
um, who are putting their lives on the line and are sometimes being um, harassed by members of the public because they're wearing scrubs and they are being accused of carrying the virus or transmitting the virus when those are the people who are putting their lives on the line to, to care for those who are unwell. And I feel sorry for the doctors having to make decisions about who gets a ventilator, who gets treated and who doesn't um, because of limited resources and all that sort of thing. I think it's a really difficult time. It's, I think that's something that's happening in other places, not just in America. I mean, it's happening in Absolutely, other places. Sherry, like that, that's definitely over Europe and the UK, all these, all these places, you know, Italy and Spain, that's, that's where those decisions were initially having to be made. But it, it's, it's very difficult. Especially Italy. Italy suffered more than any place else in the world, really. Mm. They, they, they've had more people die. They've, they had. It was terrible. I mean, what happened there? Um, and unfortunately, one of the most beautiful places in Italy was where it all started, which was Venice. Mm. So I didn't know that that was was where they had their first outbreak. That's because the the ship that brought it docked in Venice, and that was normal. Ships docked in Venice on big, those big, huge cruise ships, big, humongous well, monsters. A lot of our cases that we've had in Australia, and um, a, a significant proportion of the deaths have been from a, a cruise ship, the Ruby Princess. But um, that, yeah, the cruise ships. I don't know. I've never been a big fan of cruise ships, but I'm I'm hoping people will rethink their enthusiasm about cruises because really, I'm. Um, as a veterinarian who's worked with wildlife and has an interest in disease, you know, that's the prime place for any sort of disease outbreak because you have so many people packed into close quarters. And a respiratory virus is just going to love that, which it, which it certainly has. Yeah. Um, but there are warnings, you know, there's been outbreaks of gastrointestinal disease on cruise ships previously as well. So there were warnings that that, that was not going to be good if, if something emerged, some new disease emerged. And it did. Um, but um, there's a lot of stuff that people are, I mean, everybody's locked down, everybody. My brother is a postal worker. He's still out there, but they're working really hard to, um, you know, protect themselves. And uh, he, uh, it's sort of sweet. A lot of his customers, they used to leave water in their mailbox. Now they leave disinfectant for him. Well, I think a lot of professions that are essential and are still at, people that are out there still working, they've been very innovative in, in their approach to trying to protect themselves and to protect others and people around them. So, but this was, um, I've heard talk. This was customers. Sorry. This is customers doing it. This what? is not them doing it for themselves. This is for customers doing it as because they like their postal people and they're trying to protect them. I think that's sweet. <laughs> I think I think that's great, and I think that that's how we should we should use this. Is even though we have to do social distancing, it's a time of bonding because we're all in this together. Like that's such a cliche, but we we so are, and and so alienating people and um, it's just it's just the wrong thing to do. We should this is a whole community um, a whole community event disaster really, and so we all got to support each other. So it's great to hear stories like that. Yeah, that's another thing. I'm hoping that this will open people's eyes, that the borders and nationalities and all that really doesn't matter, that we're one planet and one people, and we've got to stop acting like children in the playground. Yeah. You know? Care about each other. 
help each other and not be selfish. That's, that's I am hoping that that's one of the lessons that's going to be learned. Well, there are, there are many good stories coming out of this as well. You know, people supporting each other and um, you know caring for neighbours and elderly people who can't go out shopping and and the other thing has been um, amazing. You know, it's, a te- it's terrible the impact that all this has had on on the arts on, oh, on yeah. actors and all those sorts and writers and all those sorts of people like yeah. ourselves. Um, yeah. But there's been a lot of uh, creative uh, creative approaches to, you know, authors doing virtual book launches online and book discussions. And, and you know, I think it's a good time for reading. Uh, people at home and have got not necessarily more time if they're homeschooling their children and all that sort of thing as well as a result of the COVID outbreak. But there is more time for reading because we don't have all of those other things like going out to yoga class or going to the gym and all those sorts of things we were doing before. So people can buy books online and apparently books are doing okay still at the moment. So um, that side of things is good. Though I really do feel for you know other, other aspects of the arts and the performers and all that sort of thing who just um, have no income. It's tricky. Yeah, um, it's very bad in some areas, and uh, and I think that it's really great that in different countries, your Australia, with the um, picture of you were at work and, and and saying please support the arts, and people here doing little videos to help support the arts and the different things that people are doing around the world is really really good because. It's just like, this is the first time it's a world event since World War II. And during World War II, people went to the movies. That's how they survived all the horror that was going on. They went to see movies. Guess what? We're not going out to see movies, but we're going watching it on our laptops and our TVs and our, our phones. We're still surviving on the movies, so we've got to support these people. <laughs> and the other, good th- the other thing is we are lucky in this time that we do have the... Um, technological connections that we do through the internet and through social media to to keep our connections with other people going. Yeah. Um, and that we can do many of the things that we're managing to do because if, if this sort of thing happened without that, it would be extremely isolating. That's true. Like this. That's what we're also. doing right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, so... I want to give you time. Could you tell about, uh, you said you don't want to tell about, do you want to tell you about your new book that's coming out, or you didn't want to talk about it? Uh, well, it's not coming out yet. It's just the first draft, so it'll be at least a couple of years off. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, my last book, I, I did already mention a little bit about that, The Orchardist Daughter that was set in Tasmania, um, and about about that timber community and the small Tasmanian timber town. So I've kind of given you a bit of a rundown on, on each of my books. So, yeah, I won't talk about my new book. It's just evolving, and it may change a lot. So it'll be at least a couple of years off. But the ones I've written are The Stranding, The Lightkeeper's Wife, The Grass Castle, and The Orchardist's Daughter. Uh, and they were all about, all set in Australian landscapes. They're all about very human stories. with characters. So I write contemporary realist fiction. So my characters are all uh, characters that I hope my readers will be able to relate to. They feel like real people facing real-life challenges. Um, I'm very interested in the baggage we inherit from our pasts and, and how that creates, how that shapes us as people and how we overcome some of the hurdles of, um, of that baggage that we inherit from our parents or from our country. 
uh, from our history. And I'm also very, um, uh, very compassionate about the natural world. So all of my novels have um, usually have some domestic animals in them. They're not like Betty novels or anything, but they have domestic or wild wild animals in them, Australian wildlife. And one of my aims with my writing is to try and take people out into the landscapes to feel like they're there, to give them a sense of the place and the, um, and the characters' connections with those places. So, uh, but I do that in a in the context of a story that moves fairly quickly, that pulls you into the lives of the characters, and and usually each one hovers above some sort of controversial or uh, complex event from different perspectives. So the stranding was about a whale stranding on a beach. That that was a I mentioned that earlier. The lightkeeper's wife um, focuses a bit on um, experimentation with animals uh, and with choices at the end of life, with people making their own choices about how what pathway they want to take, whether they want to go into a nursing home or, or take control of things themselves. Um, the Grass Castle, I mentioned before, was about connection with the land, but it's also about kangaroos in Australia and the management of kangaroos. We have quite a lot of controversy over the fact that some of our larger kangaroos breed quite well in the altered landscapes with improved pastures and watering points, and, and they can have an impact on other species and cause them to become endangered. But culling or killing kangaroos to drop their numbers is quite controversial so this novel the, the grass castle kind of um, is scaffolded around um, managing kangaroos over in Australia and my latest novel um, The Orchardist Daughter is a bit about forests and sustainable forestry and the impact that mechanisation is having on jobs for people working in forests for timber workers um, because the, the machines they use these days in um, a matter of minutes can cut as much timber as it used to take two men on chainsaws two weeks to cut. So the rate at which timber is being pulled out of forests now not only is having a major impact on ecosystems but it's also affecting the number of jobs available for timber workers and, and so that novel looks at the impact on those small communities. So yeah, I like to tackle controversial issues. I like to do it in the context of Australian landscapes. I like to do it through characters with interesting, uh, interesting lives, and I like to focus on communities. So, so that's what my work is generally around. Um, so we're coming to the end. Uh, could I have your website, your social media, anything that so people can get in touch with you and see your books and say hi if they want to? So my website is www.karenbiggers.com which is um, K-A-R-E-N-V-I-G-G-E-R-S. That's my website. Um, I'm also, um, I have two um, pages on Facebook. One is Karen Biggers Author and the other is Karen Biggers Books. The Karen Biggers Books one is mainly about my books and, and that sort of thing, whereas Karen Biggers Author is a little bit more personal. And I'm also on um, Twitter and uh, Instagram. I think it's at Biggers K. Um, I think that's I should know. I think nobody ever there. Well, I don't. You have to tell me. <laughs> I'd be easy enough to find. There's not too many. There's, I think there's one other Karen Diggers in Germany, uh, okay. but that's each for the world. So I, I should be easy enough to find. Okay. All right. That's cool. Um, also, uh, are you going to be doing any online events like the book reading we, you were talking about before, or anything like that? I should give that some thought, shouldn't I, about doing a reading? But 
No, I've been very caught up in family life and, and trying to get my own writing going again. So at the moment, no plans, but I'm going to think about that now you've suggested it. <laughs> Well, glad to be a fell. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I really uh, appreciate t- you taking the time. Well, thank you, Sherry. It's been really lovely to chat with you. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Uh-huh.